0: Ulrich was born in a small Swiss village on January the first, 1484. He studied theology at Basel and Bern, where humanist teachings were thriving. He then went on to study at the University of Vienna, where he received a Master's of Arts in 1506. He would become a priest in the village of Glars, where he would continue his humanist studies, becoming proficient in the Greek New Testament. By the time he had reached Zurich in 1518, he had memorized all of Paul's writings in the original Greek. However, he often claimed that he never was influenced by Luther's writings. He, he claimed that he came to many of the same conclusions as Luther, apart from Luther. Although many theologians and historians debate his grandstanding. Ulrich was both a pastor and a patriot, a theologian and a politician. He fought with passion. Even today, if you were to travel to Zurich, you'll find a statue there of Ulrich. In one hand, he'll, he has a Bible in the other a sword, which often is a good depiction of, of kind of how he ran his ministry and his congregation. But it would be his preaching that would win the hearts of many in Zurich. In fact, Ulrich was the one who is most claimed for expositional preaching. He was the one who said, hey, if I'm going to preach, I'm just going to preach the Bible and might as well begin in Matthew and begin to preach all the way through it. And so he did. He was passionate, devoted, and well-studied. Historian and professor Timothy George says this of Ulrich, no one preached sola Christus more strongly than he. One example of this is found in his 67 articles where he writes, the summary of the gospel is that our Lord Jesus Christ, true Son of God, has made, has made known to us the will of the Heavenly Father and has redeemed us from the death and reconciled us with God by His guiltlessness. Therefore, Christ is the only way to salvation of all who were, are now, or shall be. Ulrich Zwingli was one of the uh, formidable reformers of the church, the one, one who reclaimed gospel preaching, and particularly the subject we want to take up this morning, that is Solus Christus, or Christ alone. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, you're kind of jumping in on this. We have, over the past uh, three weeks, considered the five solas of the Reformation. You might wonder why that is, and it's because, truly, uh, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, So, October 31st marks the the, sort of the the start of the Reformation, and uh, we could debate uh, finer details of that. But, but one of the things I wanted to do is uh, in our time together over the, the five weeks in October was just to really reconsider and rethink about, is it really important? Is the Protestant Reformation important? Should we, should we even consider it? Uh, does it really matter? Um, and my hope is that I've convinced you that it does, uh, lest we lose the gospel. Uh, So this morning I was coming to church. I saw a church sign. It said uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and uh, we're going to sing a new song. And as I reflected on that, one of the things that church's sign should say is that we are going to sing a new song and teach a different gospel Uh, because that church, though it claims to be Protestant, has long abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ, has long abandoned it. So as a congregation, we don't want to fall into that same trap Uh, We want to uh, make sure we understand the gospel. We understand that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so we've considered these five solas uh, scripture alone. Uh, So scripture is the basis of all of our understanding. Uh, All of our teaching is scripture alone, uh, not through human teaching or human wisdom. Uh, We also understand that, that salvation is by grace alone. Uh, not by works. It's nothing that we do as we'll consider more in a moment in, in Christ alone. And then all, last week we turned and thought about faith alone. Uh, so central to the Reformation was an understanding of justification. How one can have a relationship with a holy God. Uh, so Luther wrestled with the reality and truth that he was sinful. The Bible makes a very clear and compelling case that we are all sinners. That we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And, uh, and so how do we have a relationship with this holy God. How is it that sinful people can be with a perfectly holy God? And that's what we we thought about last week and what we'll think about more this week. That the work of Christ Jesus alone is our standing. That that in Christ alone we have salvation. And so this morning there's many places we could turn to. We could turn to, for an example, uh, uh, John 14 that you heard earlier. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We could consider in uh, First Timothy, uh, where Timothy says, uh, or Paul says to Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Or we consider the text that we're going to look at here. And so, this morning, if you're visiting with us, normally what we do is verse by verse exposition. Normally, what we do is just walk through. And so, uh, beginning, uh, we're going to pick back up in November. First Peter, uh, where we had been considering for two months, and we're going to pick that back up. So this is going to feel a little bit more topical, and for that I apologize. That's not, it's just really outside of my nature, um, but, but hopefully it'll be helpful for us to consider Christ alone as the basis for our salvation. It's Just kind of let our minds be filled with the glory of Christ. And so I invite you this morning to turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, I just encourage you to grab that one in front of you in the pew uh, and turn to page 912 in there, and there you'll find our text this morning. Um, In fact, uh, turn to 911, uh, where chapter 4 begins. Um, So we're just going to look at verse 12, but but, but for context, I'll I'll read uh, beginning in verse 1. Just to set the stage a bit, uh, Peter and and, uh, John are in a bit of trouble. Uh, Because they healed a lame beggar. Uh, They healed a man and kind of stirred up some commotion and and concern uh, from the religious leaders. And uh, so now we're going to kind of see their conversation the religious leaders had with uh, John and with Peter following this. So they're standing here in verse 1. So chapter 4 and verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came up. "...greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. On the next day their rulers and elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem... With Ananias the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you to excuse me to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by him this man is standing well before you this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name by which we must be saved. And so this morning we want to consider that Jesus Christ's obedient life and vicarious death is sufficient means for our salvation. Our salvation from God's just wrath. In Christ alone, God justifies His righteous judgment against our sin. Therefore, Christ alone is the object of our faith, which we receive by grace. And so this morning, we want to think about the object of our faith. What are we trusting in? What are we depending upon? What are we resting in when we say we have faith in Christ, when we say we believe Christ, when we're trusting in Christ? During the time of the Reformation, Rome taught that God justifies us by the combination of Christ's work plus our sacramental incorporation into Christ by the mediation of the church. So the purpose of our time this morning is to kind of argue, if you will, uh, to kind of argue from Scripture that justification is by faith alone and not by works. It is by faith alone alone in the finished work of Christ. And so in our time this morning, I want to put forward two main reasons why justification why justification must be by the merits of Christ alone. And so we're going to look at really two passages, this one and then 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, so we're going to look at Acts uh, 4.11 and 12 and then 2 Corinthians. So what we want to think about is the object of our faith. First, the f- sort of first main point, The first reason why justification must be by the merits of Christ alone is because Jesus is God the Son incarnate. His merits alone are sufficient. And then we want to take up the task of considering Jesus' life and death is the only sufficient means to satisfy God's wrath against our sin. So it is only in Christ that we can receive forgiveness. So let's take up our first point. Jesus is the Son of God. His merits alone are sufficient. Peter, in this passage, says that Jesus is the cornerstone. That Jesus is the the chief stone that was rejected by the builders. The, The very stone that if you were to take it away, the whole building would come crashing down. If you were to take that cornerstone away, there wouldn't be no building anymore. Jesus is the central piece to God's redemptive plan and purpose. Jesus isn't plan B. It wasn't as if you know, God had plan A and it kind of fell apart, didn't really uh, materialize. But rather, he is plan A. All the way back in the Old Testament, beginning in the Garden of Eden, we see foreshadow after foreshadow of the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation. And here in this passage, we see that Peter rightly understands that Jesus is the point of the Old Testament. That everything that happened in the Old Testament was to point us to Jesus. This is what Jesus believed about himself as well. As he taught, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Uh, The scribes and Pharisees had thought, hey, in the scriptures we'll find salvation. It's true. Those scriptures were pointing to salvation in Jesus. All of God's redemptive work in the Old Testament finds its culmination in Christ. Every prophecy, every, everything that was told, everything that happened, all points to Jesus and to His work. So if we were to remove Jesus, if we were to kind of set Jesus aside and say, Jesus plus something else, whatever that other thing would be, would be to undo all That God provides for us in Christ. It would undermine the very gospel we claim to believe. Peter goes on to say in verse 12 that there is no other name under heaven. There's no other name under heaven given among men. Notice in this passage, something that we often kind of gloss over. We celebrate the exclusivity of Christ, but notice that Jesus is given. That Jesus was given. He, it's not something that we kind of go up to God and earn, but it's something that is given. The Father gave Jesus to us. Peter here is pointing to the person of Christ. The dependence of salvation in Christ. A, a person. Not an idea. Not a, a some system. But a person. We are trusting a person. And so if we are trusting a person, we better understand who that person is. This is one reason why we we read earlier together the Nicene Creed, because we want to understand who Jesus is. Uh, To be confused about Jesus is to be confused about the gospel. Uh, The person of Jesus is central to the gospel. To deny this reality of who Jesus is, that he is both fully God and fully man, is to very undermine and unravel all of the gospel. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is not like any other human being. He is unique. He wasn't just a good person. He wasn't just a faithful and religious man. Or simply just sinless. Jesus was more than that. Uh, Jesus was much more. The Bible teaches us that he is the one and only Son of God. He's not half God and half man. He is the eternal Son of God. That means Jesus doesn't have a birthday. All right? Jesus does not have a birthday. And and it confuses children, by the way, when you teach them that he does. No, what we celebrate in in the incarnation of Christ is that the eternal Son of God was married to human flesh. That, That he was robed in human. Jesus has eternally existed with his Father in perfect union with him. As John tells us, he is the beginning. And the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the eternal creator. Jesus has always existed. He does not have a beginning nor an end. But Jesus isn't only fully God, but he is also fully man. And so in the Advent season at Christmas time, that's what we're celebrating is that Jesus is not only fully God, but he is also fully man. As Luke tells us about Jesus, and the child Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. There in Bethlehem, the eternal son of God was forever united in human flesh. Jesus today in heaven is a human being. He is fully human. Just as fully human as you and I are today. And the promise of life. But why is this all important? Why why spend time thinking about Jesus? You know, we all we all know who Jesus is. Because he is the only one that you depend on for salvation. If Jesus is some half-baked teacher... Uh, some sage to follow for good advice, uh, then he won't suffice. He is not sufficient. If if Jesus in your mind has just got some good moral teaching to follow, well, he's not sufficient for you. He's not sufficient. Uh, Friend, I am not basing my eternal hope on some good teaching. And I hope you're not either. We are basing our eternal hope on the incarnate Son of God, the one who came and died for our sins. This is what Paul argues in 1 Peter 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. One, exclusive, Uh, Jesus is the only one. The man, Jesus Christ. Notice Paul emphasizes Jesus' humanity. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus is a man because he had to represent men. And by men, I don't mean just males. I mean humanity. In order to represent us in what we're going to consider in a moment, he must be a person. He must be a person. And Jesus was a person. He was yet he was more than that. He was fully God. This means that there is nothing more we can add to Christ. Christ is perfect. There is nothing about him that is wrong. And so if we rightly understand the person of Christ, then we ought to conclude that we can add nothing to him. So a right understanding of Jesus leads to a conclusion There's nothing I can add to Jesus. There's no amount of of faithfulness, no amount of good works, no amount of love, no amount of obedience that I can kind of throw on Jesus to help him along. Just as we heard earlier, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the one whom we get access to the Father from. You can't climb in some other way. Yeah, there's no walls in heaven where you're jumping in in some different way. Jesus is the only way. The only access to God is through Him. And friend, not even you can get access to God. You know, I know you, you think you're amazing. And that you're lovable, lovely and beautiful. And just You have this wonderful personality and good looks. And surely God, in His love, looks on you and has compassion, says, you know, it's okay, I understand, you know, we all make mistakes. And if that describes your understanding of your acceptance with God, I hope to undermine that this morning. That the only way you can be accepted by God is through Jesus. He alone gains you access to the Father. He alone is the key that swings open heaven's doors. And so this morning, you must understand who Christ is. To think that you can gain acceptance by God some other way, that you can somehow merit God's love, You can somehow earn His affection through obedience. That's how we behave with our earthly relationships. We do something in order to earn love. In order to to earn affection, we we do something because we hope that it will be received and that they will love us back. But God is not like that. God does not love us because of us, but because of Christ. Christ. The basis of God's acceptance is in Christ and His person. And more than that, to say that you need to somehow add something to Jesus is to throw Him aside. It's to throw aside Jesus. It's to cast Him aside and say, I can do this. I am sufficient for the task. Friend, there are many names. There are many names that pretend to save. But none of them will suffice. There are many religions that will tell you that if you do some things, that you can have peace with God. Through some exercising or through some meditation, you can have peace. Friend, they will never give you peace. They will never. They're, they're all pretend. Nothing, nor anyone, can do it. Only Jesus. Jesus. The Heidelberg Confession, question 29, makes this point clear. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because He saves us and delivers us from our sins. And likewise, because we ought not to seek, neither can we find salvation in any other. We ought not be looking around for any other way. We ought not be involved in that kind of behavior, but find salvation in Christ alone. For He alone is perfect. Christ is the incarnate Son of God who alone can save us from God's wrath. And thanks be to God, He has. Thanks be to God that Jesus is not only willing and able, but that He has in His own life offered the sufficient means. So let's turn to our second point. And for that, we need to to leave Luke and uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, I just invite you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 966. 966. 2 Corinthians 5. Here Paul is arguing about reconciliation, how, how one can have a reconciled relationship with God. So if you think that you are a friend of God this morning, if someone has wrongly taught you that, you, that you're a child of God because you're created in the image of God, and that God loves you because you're his creation, well, friend, that is not true. Um, we are at enmity with God apart from Christ. So before Christ, we are at war with God. We are his enemies. We don't like God. We don't want nothing to do with God. Uh, we might bring him around at Christmas time. Uh, we might bring him around at Easter. We might, you know, bring him near, set him up on the stand, do something with him. But, 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 nine times out of ten, he's in the closet, right? So, to, so we want to understand here that we are enmity with God, and so something or someone has to sort of be a mediator. Someone needs to get in the middle of this because if not, all oh, is going to be a fight. And that's what we see Jesus doing. Jesus is entering the scene. He is coming in the middle of this big war that is going on between humanity and God. And he is stepping in and he is saying, hey, don't kill them. Don't destroy them, Father. Come and destroy me. Don't destroy them any longer. Don't, don't judge them any longer. Judge me in their place. And that's what Paul says. And, and if you want one verse you could commit to memory that helps to summarize the gospel, I think of really no other one than than 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ alone, God declares us righteous. Not because of some act we did, but because of the acts of Christ. Because of what Christ did. How Christ acts as our covenant representative and substitute. God provides a sinless substitute for sinners in His own Son. He took our sin and their penalty and places them on Jesus In other words, God condemned an innocent man so that he could set free the guilty. God freed guilty sinners that rightly deserved God's wrath by condemning His sinless Son. I want you to notice here first the source of our substitute, where we get our substitute from. We heard it in Acts 4.12 that God gave... And here, notice what he says, for our sake, God made him to be sin. Paul is emphasizing that the Father is the one who supplies our sacrifice. Uh, We don't come up with it at all. We don't don't conjure it up. God justly judges our sin, yet is simultaneously the judge. He judges our sin, yet at the same time, he is the one who provides. Uh, Nowhere in our world do we see this. Right? Can you imagine that you you go to a judge here in an American court uh, and you are rightly wrong for some act you did, and the judge says, This is the penalty, this is this is my judgment. And and by the way, let me step down from this, and I will go ahead and serve that for you. I will go ahead and and you know, I'll go to prison in your place. No, nobody's gonna but that's what Paul is saying, and and in Romans three twenty-six, he says it this way. So that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is both just and the justifier. He's the one who is righteous and the one who sets at right sinners. God alone is the means and ends of man's salvation. It is his work from beginning to end. You always were taught, I bet, that salvation had something to do with you. Some decision you need to make. We rightly put our faith, we rightly turn from our sins, but it is God who has orchestrated this and He has caught you up in His divine purposes. No more could you save yourself if you were drowning. Can you save yourself from God's just wrath? We also see here that the Father provides in His Son a sinless substitute. He says that He knew no sin. The language Paul uses emphasizes that Jesus was undeserving of this punishment. Jesus had done nothing to deserve death. Jesus was perfect. He perfectly obeyed His Father and willingly submitted to His Father's will by voluntarily becoming sin. This was all voluntary. This was nothing that that, that He was forced to do. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2:22, "He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Friend, where we rebel against God, Jesus obeyed perfectly. Where we want to live life our own way, Jesus willingly obeyed his Father. Jesus died for us. Jesus' death was the or excuse me, Jesus' righteousness, His rightly following God, was the currency that God used to purchase. Our salvation. We further see in this passage that that Jesus here is a substitute for our sin, that Jesus is dying in the place as a substitute for someone else. Just like you got a substitute teacher, you got a different teacher, right? In this context, we see that Jesus is a substitute. That means that we deserve the cross, we deserve death, but Jesus steps in our place for our sake. Jesus did this. For our benefit. On our behalf is what Paul is saying there. It was on our behalf that Jesus died. Jesus came to this earth to live the life that you couldn't. You you can't. Sin has disabled you. Sin does not enable you. It disables you. It it changes you. It does not give you life. It gives you death. But Jesus came to live the life you couldn't. You could never perfectly obey God because of the sin nature. But God, in His grace and His Son, to live a perfect life and to die the death you deserved. To die the death you and I deserved. What Paul is teaching here is, is what we call uh, substitutionary atonement. That Jesus dies in the place of another. It's the heart of the gospel. To remove substitutionary atonement is to, is to really undo the gospel. The idea is that God's wrath is satisfied through the death of another. And this sort of theme runs all through the Bible. Beginning all the way back in, in Genesis 1. Running all the way through to Genesis 3. As we see, something dies in order to cover the shame Adam and Eve. God closed them with skins, with animal skins. Before that point, no animal had died, but here we see God killing an animal to cover the shame of their sin. Something died in the place of Adam and Eve. As we continue the story, we, we, we could pick up with Isaiah or with Isaac and Abraham. We could see all throughout the Old Testament, uh, we see at the core of the sacrificial system, animals are dying so that the nation of Israel does not. In Exodus 12, we see the picture clearly in the Passover lamb. A lamb dies, blood smeared on the, on the doorpost. Why? So that those inside the home wouldn't die. God kills something else in the place of the one who deserves to die. This is what Isaiah taught in The Suffering Servant. That the Suffering Servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The word Paul uses in our text is that word that Isaiah uses there. God punishes him. He pierces him. God crushes him for our sin. This is what God is doing in the cross. God is the one punishing Jesus. Jesus took upon himself our sins so that we would no longer have to face their penalty. As we come to the New Testament, we see substitutionary atonement all over the place, particularly when John says of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It wasn't some pretty picture that he was depicting there. It wasn't some cute little lamb he was throwing over his shoulder. What he was depicting there is that lamb is the Passover lamb, the one who's going to be carried away and killed. And It was beautiful. John saw in Christ the one who would take the curse of sin upon himself to redeem us from the curse of death. Jesus bore the penalty of our sin. By dying the death we deserve. When we understand that Jesus is dying in our place, we are at the heart of the gospel. We are at the very heart of what we are trusting in. What we believe took place on Calvary. Is that He died in our place. And that every sin for which we have committed or will commit was punished on the cross. There's no judgment left. Now, I want you to think about that. If there is no judgment left, if God is satisfied all of His righteous anger, why do you think God is angry with you this morning? Christian, why do you think God doesn't love you? Why do you think that He's angry with you and He's just going to like a, you know, take your job and take your money and take all your stuff away and punish you? Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, does this injustice appall you? I mean, it's injustice. This is the greatest injustice ever created. Innocent man dies guilty, let free. You'd be freaking out right now if that happened. If some innocent person was killed today and and simultaneously uh, the prison doors were swung open and all all the guilty folks could leave. You you would be you'd be on Facebook and all that, and be commenting and ranting and raving, right? But friends, that is what happens in the cross. If you're not a Christian this morning, the only way that you can satisfy God's just wrath against your sin is through Christ, by faith in the merits of Christ. Uh, apart from Christ. The condemnation remains. And so if, if you are not in Christ today, if you do not have faith and trust in Christ, if you're not depending on Jesus alone, and I don't want to offer you any hope this morning. That you're going to turn up into heaven and everything's going to be fine. No, I want to encourage you this morning to repent of your sins and to trust in this Christ that we have spent our time thinking about. The fact that it took God's, God sending his own son demonstrates the inadequacy and inability for you to save yourself. In giving his son, God gave himself. Repentance and faith is the only proper response. Christian, I just want to encourage you this morning with this truth. Will you lift your head higher, knowing that God has satisfied his wrath through the death of Christ? We, we don't exalt ourselves and think that we're better than others. That's what we considered a few weeks ago. We are saved by grace. Uh, it, there's nothing about us that is lovely. We are marred by sin. But God in his kindness saves us. And he has offered hope to you this morning. That if you confess your sins, it, it, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I want you to look at a few more things here. I just want to marinate in this for a few more minutes. Our text also reminds us that we have everything in Christ. That everything you need is in Jesus. There's no need for anything else. God's pleasure with you this morning is not because you read your Bible this week, because you prayed, or or because you turned up to church today. God doesn't love you because you, you, you did those things. God doesn't his love isn't like warmed over this morning because you did some good deed in the flesh or because of your love for him. No, God's love for you is fully dependent on Jesus. God grounds his love for you in Jesus alone. That's what's so good about the gospel. Is that we understand rightly about ourselves we do not deserve God's love. We are undeserving of this kind of what we deserve is the cross but what we have been given is life. That causes us to celebrate, causes us to have joy. So friend, do not walk with your head high held high thinking that you deserve God's love but receive it graciously. The understanding is a work of grace. Lay, lay humbly at the cross. Depend on Christ. Paul teaches us here in this passage that that we receive some things in the gospel, and at the heart of justification is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. That is, that we receive something. We give nothing. We offer nothing. But what we get is glorious. We, We see in this passage that through the death of Christ, we receive forgiveness of our sins. How is it that God can can forgive? How is it that God can, can rightly or justly let you go? How can he let you off the hook? How can he do that? Because he punishes someone else. God does not sweep our sin under the rug. He does not say, oh, you know, it's no big deal. It's it's all right. Everyone makes mistakes. No, no, no. He says, I am forgiving you because I punished someone else in your place. I can forgive your sin because your sin has been cast away. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, Paul says. Why was he not doing that? Because he had punished someone else. For in through Christ alone, God offers forgiveness to you. You can know today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God will forgive every sin. Even the most vile and wicked sins. God is a good God. And he offers forgiveness through Christ. Because he has satisfied the judgment your sin deserves. More than that, in Christ alone, God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. All that perfect life we were kind of marinating over and just salivating. The Man, I wish I could live perfectly. I wish I could obey God the way Jesus did. I wish I could faithfully follow God. Friend, in Christ alone, all of the righteousness of Christ is given to you. You are not made righteous. You are imparted righteousness. You are given alien righteousness, a righteousness that you did not purchase and you did not do. This is so glorious. You receive it by faith. You receive the righteousness of Christ. Look at what he says here in verse 21. So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become righteous. That we might become holy as God is holy. This is the purpose of redemption. Not to to merely just wipe away our sins, but to to add to our sins. I mean, to add to our lives. And so God does not give those who have faith in Christ a a fresh start. So if you're looking for a fresh start today, uh, that's Jesus saying, offering you a fresh start. He's not giving you a blank slate. He's not just kind of wiping the board clean and saying, all right, you're good to go. That would be good. That would be wonderful. You know, clean slates are good, fresh starts, You know, new jobs, new life, new this, new that, new identity. But in the Christian gospel, God gives us so much, something so much sweeter. He not only wipes the slate clean, he gives us the righteousness of Christ. What that means is, is that today, today, I mean right now, right now, with all the junk you did yesterday and all the evil thoughts you're thinking about now, if you are in Christ, if your faith is in Him, God is not looking upon your mess, but upon the perfect, righteous life of Jesus. This means that today, you are just as secure in Christ as you will be 10,000 years from now. You are not going to grow closer to God than you are right now. That is good news.
1: Because I'm a mess.
0: I'm a sinner. And I need Jesus. I need the righteousness of Christ. I don't need my righteousness. So God imputes our sins to Christ. He gives our sins to Jesus and we get Jesus' righteous life. We get all of his good deeds. So we get it. So when God sees you, he sees the prayer warrior Jesus. He sees the sin fighting, the demon crushing Jesus. That's what he sees. That's how how he looks at you. That's how he thinks about you. That's how his love is towards you. So if you want to kind of marinate there, you want to kind of sit there, you want to get in the crock pot there, what I'd encourage you to do is go to the Gospels. And read all the passages where God the Father said something about a son and know that He's saying that about you. He's saying that about you because you have been united to Jesus. You are in Jesus. Your perfect life, your, your life is perfect because of Christ. This is encouraging, brothers and sisters. This is encouraging. That the foundation of our relationship with God is solely based on Jesus. Our firm foundation is in Christ alone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You ever wondered why you sang that? It's because that's your only hope, is the righteous life of Christ and the substitutionary atonement that we thought about. In Christ we have a Savior who can truly save, and in whom we are complete. You're lacking nothing today. You don't need more money in the checking account. You don't need a new car. You don't need all the things you think you need. Because you have everything you need in Christ. The atonement of Christ accomplishes this new relationship. We are now reconciled to God. We are now in a relationship so that we can sing what a friend we have in Jesus. That's an arrogant statement to make apart from the cross of Christ. But in Christ, we have a restored relationship with God. Uh, Through through Christ, we, we can come back home. Through Christ, we have access to the Father's help. We get the keys of the kingdom. We can get in. We're not locked out any longer. We can can come home and and sinner this morning. I want to encourage you that you can come home too. There's no sin too great that the Father will cast you away. For he has punished that sin in the death of his son. Friend, where have you seen this this kind of self-sacrifice? To, to pursue righteousness or to pursue, excuse me, reconciliation with an enemy. Where have you seen in the world anyone behaving this way? Where have you ever seen an enemy saying, you know what, I'm not going to destroy you anymore. I'm actually, uh, I want you to be my friend. I want you to come home. But does it to, to surprise you that God would no longer condemn you because of Christ? Friend, what you've heard this morning, and I hope to encourage you with again, is the Christian Gospel. The salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's for God's glory alone. He saves. It is not by your merit that you do not deserve it. You do not earn it, but you receive it as you would receive a gift. Unearned, no strings attached, You receive it by grace. Christian, how have you been pursuing your relationship with God? Does it look like what we've been considering this morning? Or does it more kind of look like you trying to please God all the time? Trying to impress God with your intellect or abilities? Trying to live a good moral life? What you're trying to do? Set a good example for your children. Friend, that's no way to live a life before a holy God. It's a fool's, fool's game to try to please God through obedience. So set it aside. Abandon your destructive way and go God's new way. Don't gauge your proximity to God based on some good deeds you've done this week. Don't gauge whether or not God loves you because you are impressive but rather trust in the finished work of Christ. Rest there. Rest in those promises. Trust those promises. Trust in Him alone. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we we are in all of your goodness and grace. We are in all of your kindness in Christ. And we pray that the word preached today, that your word would transform us and change us, and that we would trust anew in Christ alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.